Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the development of intensified T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia-focused protocols, the use of a thrombopoietin agonist for thrombocytopenia following allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, and a crucial step forward in the development of miRNA therapies targeting myeloid diseases. First up, we'll discuss developments in the treatment for T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or TALL. Historically, prognosis for TALL has been very poor. However, the development of intensified pediatric TALL protocols has resulted in significant improvements in outcomes. In the blood article, How I Treat Newly Diagnosed T-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia and T-Cell Lymphoblastic Lymphoma in Children, doctors David Tichy and David O'Connor use a case-based approach to highlight the key questions and developments in TALL treatment. Such questions include, which corticosteroids should be used during induction? How are patients risk stratified? How is treatment for early T-cell precursor phenotype approached? How should minimal residual disease, or MRD, be used to guide recommendations for transplant? Which patients should receive cranial radiotherapy, or CRT? Which patients should receive nalarabine? Case 1 of the author's review focuses on a 12-year-old previously healthy boy who presented with pallor and bony pain, anemia with a normal white blood cell and platelet count, and a small mediastinal mass. Bone marrow aspirate revealed greater than 60% T lymphoblasts with an early T-cell precursor immunophenotype. The cerebrospinal fluid was negative for leukemia. Cytogenetic and molecular profiling using a next-generation sequencing panel were unremarkable. In the author's case, the patient was started on therapy as per the control arm of a children's oncology group study which included a four-drug induction of dexamethasone, pegylated asparaginase, vincristine, and donorubicin, along with intrathecal chemotherapy. After an end-of-induction marrow aspirate was positive for minimal residual disease with 4.2% blasts by flow, he was continued with an augmented BFM-like consolidation, resulting in negative MRD by flow. Although he developed candida sepsis during consolidation, he was successfully treated with caspofungin and he remains in remission one year after starting therapy. As observed by Tichi and O'Connor, the pediatric patient described in case one had a fairly classic TALL presentation, and despite suffering a potentially life-threatening infection, he is likely to be cured. The authors use case 1 to highlight the need for a four-drug induction containing dexamethasone and an anthracycline along with intrathecal chemotherapy, followed by an augmented BFM-like consolidation containing cyclophosphamide. Tichi and O'Connor reinforce that while dexamethasone has more infectious morbidity and mortality compared to prednisone, this is counterbalanced by reduction of relapse through increased potency and CNS penetration. Now, in contrast to BALL, where risk stratification relies on disease biology, clinical features and response to therapy, including MRD status, to date only bone marrow morphologic response and MRD can reliably be used for risk assessment in TALL. 
Importantly, and also different from B-cell disease, most TALL patients have detectable MRD at the end of induction, and outcomes remain favorable if they have low-level or undetectable MRD at the end of consolidation. The authors highlight the data currently available to recommend which individuals should be considered for transplant based on patient age and specific thresholds of MRD positivity at the end of induction versus at the end of consolidation. Tichi and O'Connor also touch on the historically poor prognosis of ETP-type ALL. However, results with modern therapy suggest that this entity exhibits outcomes similar to non-ETP ALL. Therefore, it is recommended that the two subtypes be treated the same in the absence of targetable genetic abnormalities. Cranial radiotherapy has fallen out of favor due to long-term morbidities including endocrinopathies, secondary cancers, and neurocognitive deficits. Intensification of asparaginase, use of dexamethasone, additional intrathecal chemotherapy, and systemic high-dose methotrexate has managed to reduce CNS relapse. Tichi and O'Connor review cooperative group trial data, which form the basis of the recommendation to only use CRT in patients with frank CNS leukemia at diagnosis, so-called CNS3. They do not recommend that CNS1 or CNS2 patients receive routine prophylactic CRT as long as they are treated with systemic chemotherapy as well as intrathecal chemotherapy to reduce CNS relapse. The authors also provide a detailed review of randomized trials comparing Capizzi-style escalating doses of methotrexate plus PEG asparaginase versus high-dose methotrexate with or without multiple courses of nilarabine for patients with intermediate or high-risk disease. With several caveats regarding the confounding effect of trial therapies, such as the number of asparaginase doses or the timing of prophylactic cranial radiotherapy, they conclude that high-dose methotrexate is not a mandatory requirement for TALL if Capizzi methotrexate and nilarabine are included in the backbone. While the authors indicate that it is reasonable to treat all TALL patients with nilarabine regardless of risk group, a practice more common in North America, they also cite that it is reasonable to reserve nilarabine for patients with relapsed disease or with poor initial response to therapy. For example, with an MRD level greater than or equal to 5%, which is the more standard practice at European centers. Lastly, T.G. and O'Connor discuss T-lymphoblastic lymphoma, which has the same biologic and clinical features of T-ALL, except for a lesser incidence and extent of marrow and CNS involvement. T-lymphoblastic lymphoma is now treated with ALL-type therapy owing to multiple studies demonstrating superior efficacy compared to lymphoma-based regimens. The prognostic significance of bone marrow MRD at the end of induction or end of consolidation in T-lymphoblastic lymphoma is unknown and is instead primarily based on radiographic response. While the benefit of nilarabine in T-lymphoblastic lymphoma has not yet been proven and is generally recommended for refractory or relapsed disease, the authors indicate that it could also be considered during induction to optimize frontline therapy in order to avoid the need for salvage therapy where response is historically poor. Despite the vast majority of children with TALL and T-lymphoblastic lymphoma now attaining long-term cure without exposure to the potential harmful late effects of CRT, one in five children still experience refractory disease, relapse, or treatment-related mortality.
With this in mind, Tichi and O'Connor conclude by highlighting the need for large-scale, comprehensive genomic profiling of TALL cases to identify prognostic abnormalities that will improve risk stratification. This will help inform the use of targeted agents and immunotherapy in order to try to improve the outcomes of patients beyond that which has been achieved with conventional chemotherapy. Next up, we'll discuss the blood article, Romiplostum in Patients Undergoing Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation, results of a Phase 1-2 multicenter trial by Pafo de la Tour and colleagues. As described by the authors, delayed platelet recovery and secondary thrombocytopenia occur in up to 25% of patients after allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Secondary thrombocytopenia is most often caused by insufficient stem cell dose, infections, graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, and drug toxicity. In the post-transplant setting, platelet transfusion continues to be a mainstay of therapy, while the role of thrombopoietin receptor agonists has not been well studied. In this Phase 1-2 multicenter single-arm open-label trial, Patients received a weekly subcutaneous injection of rhomboplastin, an FC peptide fusion protein, or peptibody, that leads to increased platelet production via binding to the TPO receptor. In the context of transplant, rhomboplastin may be particularly convenient for patients with gut GVHD, which may complicate the administration of or bioavailability of an oral agent. In the study by Pafo de Latour and colleagues, transplanted diseases included ALL, AML, lymphoma, MPN, and aplastic anemia, with 71% of patients having undergone myeloablative conditioning. Patients were given weekly romoplastum for 12 weeks with intrapatient weekly dose escalation from 1 microgram per kilogram to a maximum dose of 10 micrograms per kilogram. The primary safety endpoint was the incidence of any grade 3 or 4 adverse events after transplant, as well as clinically significant bleeding events. The primary efficacy endpoint was time to reach a platelet count above 50,000 free of platelet transfusion. Secondary endpoints included the durability of platelet response, defined as a platelet count of 50,000 or greater for at least eight consecutive weeks independent of platelet transfusions, as well as the one-year cumulative incidence of GVHD, relapse, and non-relapse mortality. According to the study, romoplastum was initiated a median of 85 days after transplant. 24 patients were treated, including 10 patients with delayed engraftment and 14 with secondary thrombocytopenia due to GVHD and or infections. 19 patients completed the 12 injections of romoplastum. Five patients dropped out of the study, three due to death. Six patients experienced a total of 21 adverse events, including neutropenia in two, anemia in one, pancytopenia in one, and liver dysfunction in two patients. The six-month cumulative incidence of adverse events was 25%. Overall, romoplastum was well tolerated, and the reported adverse events were considered unlikely related to study drug. In regard to transplantation outcomes, no bleeding events or thrombotic complications were reported. 17 patients had acute GVHD, and 12 patients experienced chronic GVHD, reflecting a one-year cumulative incidence rate of 
non-relapse mortality was 21%, and the one-year cumulative incidence of relapse was 13%. Six patients died during the study, including one from relapse. These were outcomes that were generally expected in this population of transplant patients, and no unexpected toxicities were observed. Ultimately, 18 patients achieved a platelet count above 50,000 free of platelet transfusions after a median of 45 days. The authors indicate that a dose of 5 micrograms per kilogram was required for response. 16 patients obtained a durable platelet response, characterized by at least 8 consecutive weeks of platelet transfusion independence. Hemoglobin response was also observed in 21 out of 22 patients with a level less than 10 grams per deciliter before first injection. In addition, neutrophil improvement was observed in the four patients who had an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000 before treatment initiation. Such multilineage responses suggest a potentially similar effect to the TPO receptor agonist L-trombopag in patients with refractory aplastic anemia. However, it is not possible to exclude that hematopoietic recovery was due to spontaneous improvement over time. All in all, this Phase 1-2 study concluded that romoplostum could be safely administered in the post-allogeneic transplantation setting in patients with transfusion-dependent thrombocytopenia. Use of a dose of 5 micrograms per kilogram or higher achieved a platelet count of at least 50,000 after a median of 45 days. The use of TPO receptor agonists, such as romoplastum, fills an unmet need given the increasing use of alternative donor transplants and the morbidity and mortality related to delayed platelet recovery or secondary thrombocytopenia after allogeneic transplantation. A randomized prospective phase 3 clinical trial is required to confirm these preliminary findings. Our final topic is based on the blood article by Sue and colleagues entitled Myeloid Cell-Targeted MIRNA-146A Mimic Inhibits NF-kappa-B-Driven Inflammation and Leukemia Progression in Vivo. As described in the article, Sue and co-workers employ an elegant microRNA conjugation strategy to unleash the potential of targeted microRNA therapeutics and, as a proof of concept, effectively counteract common inflammatory and myeloid disease states. MicroRNAs, referred to as miRNAs, comprise a group of small non-coding RNAs that negatively regulate target mRNA stability and or translation in a sequence-directed manner to reduce target protein expression. miRNAs are highly conserved across species, are involved in a wide range of normal cellular and developmental processes, and exhibit remarkable cell and tissue type specificity such that perturbations in select miRNA expression can directly contribute to disease states, including inflammation and cancer. In an effort to leverage miRNA for treatment of diseases, the goal is to counteract disease-related processes by either blocking or restoring miRNA activity to normal levels, thereby relieving or imposing regulation on specific miRNA targets. However, despite specific miRNAs with potential therapeutic benefit having been identified, a major obstacle remains 
How can one effectively deliver miRNA-based therapies? In addition, how should one approach the in vivo challenges of uptake, specificity, and toxicity? Sue and colleagues from the City of Hope and California Institute of Technology focused their efforts on miRNA-146A as a therapeutic regulator to dampen NF-kappa-B-mediated inflammatory signaling. miRNA-146A is a critical gene lost in DEL5Q myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia that contributes to the pathogenesis of these myeloid malignancies. In the context of miRNA-146A loss, deregulation of IRAC1, TRAF6, and subsequent NF-kappa-B activation leads to inflammatory cytokine production and myeloid malignancy. In addition, NF-kappa-B-mediated production and release of IL-6 from monocytes is an important factor contributing to the cytokine release syndrome associated with CAR T-cell therapy in B-cell lymphomas. The authors first addressed the challenges of miRNA bioavailability and targeting by creating an efficient and cell-selective method of delivery of miRNA-146A by modifying the scavenger receptor and toll-like receptor 9 targeting platform originally developed for transfer of 25 or 27 mer dicer substrate siRNA. In particular, miRNA-146A was linked to a conjugate with monocyte and myeloid cell specificity and chemically modified for nuclease resistance to improve serum stability. These innovative miRNA conjugate features set this study apart from other approaches. The authors found that conjugated miRNA-146A reduced expression of classic miRNA-146A targets, IRAC1 and TRAF6, thereby blocking NF-kappa-B activation in target cells in vitro. In miRNA-146A deficient mice, Intravenous injections of a conjugated miRNA-146A mimic preferentially restored levels of the miRNA in myeloid cells and prevented excessive NF-kappa-B activation. In turn, this inhibited abnormal myeloproliferation and attenuated the exaggerated inflammatory response to a systemic bacterial endotoxin challenge. Exaggerated inflammatory response is relevant to patients undergoing CAR T-cell immunotherapy who may experience the severe side effects of cytokine release syndrome, or CRS. CRS is linked to CAR T-cell dependent activation of CD40 signaling in monocytes and macrophages and induction of IL-1 and IL-6, key mediators of the cytokine storm. The authors found that a conjugated miRNA-146A oligonucleotide reduced human monocyte-dependent release of IL-1 and IL-6 in a xenotransplanted B-cell lymphoma model and, importantly, did so without effects on CD19-specific CAR T-cell anti-tumor activity. Next, Based on the finding of an inverse correlation of miRNA-146A levels with NF-kappa-B related genes and with patient survival derived from the TCGA AML database, the authors evaluated the effects of the miRNA on relevant myeloid disease cell lines. 
They found that the conjugated miRNA elicited cytotoxic effects in MDSL, HL60, and MV411 leukemia cells. These in vitro anti-tumor effects of conjugated miRNA-146A were corroborated in an in vivo model of disseminated HL60 leukemia. The miRNA reduced AML progression and significantly prolonged survival of mice, which occurred in parallel with decreased expression of NF-kappa-B target genes. In summary, Sue and colleagues have discovered that conjugated miRNA-146A, a therapeutic to dampen inflammatory signaling, is a novel strategy with exciting prospects for malignancies as well as diseases rooted in inflammation. In particular, the authors have taken a crucial step forward in the development of miRNA therapies targeting myeloid diseases. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.